Um, Our sermon this morning comes from the book of Mark. Uh, Since the fall, I've been leading the youth groups through a study on Right Now Media by Francis Chan. And uh, months ago, we watched the segment on Mark 3 uh, through 4. And it just hit me like a 2 by 4 over the head. And I've been so excited about it ever since. Um, And I'm excited to be preaching from it today. Today, we're going to be talking about how uh, the kingdom of God... Uh, is unlike the kingdoms of earth. It is a kingdom unlike any other. And you're saying, Andre, I already know that. And I know you do. Uh, but maybe this will be a little bit new, uh, a new perspective on things. And even if it's just a reminder, then it's good uh, that we should be reminded of God's kingdom often. So let me go ahead and read Mark 3, starting in verse 7 through 21, and then we'll get to chapter 4. Um, So open up your Bibles at home with me as I read aloud. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from beyond Tyre and uh, Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have, a great, uh, to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the son of Thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And then chapter 4, starting in verse 30. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or, or what parables shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we come before you thankful um, for your blessing in this time of chaos and for your peace that you give us and the love that you pour out to your people. We pray that this morning as we are all gathered, uh, that your truth would be heard. God, I pray that these words are from you and that they would be food for our soul, that we would have joy and peace and that your spirit would convict when necessary, but God, that your will would be happening this morning. We love you and we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Before uh, we go too far, I just want to briefly get on the same page as to what is happening, uh, what Jesus has been doing so far in Mark. Unlike the other Gospels, uh, Mark gets right to business. He jumps in right into the ministry of Jesus and how it all began. 
the baptism, the temptation of Jesus, he's calling his first disciples. And once his disciples are in the picture, there's a theme that rises to the top. Get these disciples to see that Jesus is God. And how does he do that? Well, uh, there are miracles, uh, healings, many, many healings of the sick and possessed. And there's great teaching. Uh, We get parables, amazing insights and explanations Uh, and just divine wisdom like never before. And after our passage this morning, uh, Jesus does something else miraculous, which is calming the storm. Again, another way of showing the disciples who he is. Who is the creator and the only one that can control the universe? It's God. And he's saying, look what I did, disciples. Look what just happened. He's trying to get the disciples to connect this in his mind, in their minds. And so Jesus is taking the time to not only introduce himself, but also the heavenly kingdom. He's working on getting these disciples and followers to know what the kingdom is about, primarily through the parables, but also through his approach and execution of his ministry. And that's where I want to focus today. I think it's important that we view ourselves as followers of Jesus. He is our rabbi, our teacher, and we are his students, his disciples, and we belong to the kingdom of God. First and foremost, more than any other nation or organization or group or heritage, we are a part of God's kingdom. But to do both of these well, uh, to be a disciple of Jesus and to live in his kingdom, we need to know what that looks like. Because it's pretty unfamiliar to anything else in the world. So let's make sure we are well acquainted with God's kingdom. That way we can be better citizens and followers of Jesus. So I have three insights from God's kingdom and from our text this morning. Number one, God's kingdom moves at a slower pace than the rest of the world. God's kingdom moves at a slower pace than the rest of the world. There's a certain uh, pace and momentum and rhythm to all of our lives. And Jesus's seems to be slower than the world around him. I don't know about you, but when I have a goal or a task or a destination I'm trying to reach, all my energy and focus goes towards that thing. And for some reason, I have an internal clock that tells me to get it done as soon as possible. If it's not important, then it doesn't get the ASAP tag placed on it, and I can take my time. But if it is of any significance, I can be on the verge of frantic to try to get it done. And I don't see that here with Jesus, who arguably has the most important goal Of all time. We value efficiency, which is usually equated with the more you can do in less time, the better. I'm not saying that Jesus does not go about his ministry inefficiently, quite the opposite, actually. He is omniscient and has divine wisdom, and so maybe there are other definitions of efficiency. In fact, maybe it's we who have a misunderstanding of what being efficient looks like. So let's take a uh, look at a couple verses here. Mark 3. Uh, verse 12, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. I think this is a bit odd. Uh, this is after he had done something miraculous, and these spirits recognized, recognized him as God, but Jesus ordered them to keep it to themselves. And for some reason, Jesus wants to remain under the radar here. Uh, Mark three thirteen through 20, I'll just summarize the first part. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that, they might, uh, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So he uh, has a great crowd following him and he narrows it down to just a handful. 
He doesn't seem to care about getting the whole crowd behind him and using that momentum. If he had chosen more people to be apostles to send out, surely God's kingdom would have grown faster, right? I mean, that would have been more efficient. What about Mark 4, uh, 31 and 32? It, talking about the kingdom of God, is like a grain of uh, mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it sows, uh, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. Start to see the pace of Jesus here explained in his parable. Why is the kingdom of God not like uh, the fastest messenger running quickly from one town to the next, or a ship with the wind in its sails on the sea faster than any other ship? I don't know what. Uh, Those were my very poor attempts at making what could have been Jesus' parables of something fast. But no, he chooses something slow. He chooses a plant. And I don't know if... uh, Any of you have recently planted anything in your gardens at seed level, but it takes a really long time. I mean, most people don't have the patience to start their gardens from seeds. We we go to the nurseries to buy uh, baby plants and half-grown plants, um, plants that we can just put in there and and are good, because who wants to wait all that time to wait for the seed to grow into a full-grown tree? We want tall trees and full shrubbery and blooming flowers. Seeds take a really long time. And yet, Jesus says, this is what God's kingdom is like. God's kingdom and Jesus' ministry move at a slower pace than the rest of the world. And I think that should inform us about how we go about our lives. Both how we should view the pace of church as well as our individual lives. In regards to church, uh, there can be this notion uh, that the church should keep up with the pace of the world around it. Else, how else will the, you know, the church stay relevant? Just like there is on a personal level, it is true of the church that uh, the thought that there can always be, um, there's always more to do. We can always do more as a body of Christ. I mean, Pastor Wayne told me that as soon as I started working here at the church, that the church is a vacuum. It'll suck up all your time. There's more to do and can... All of it can be deemed important. And so church work can lead to a very busy and hurried life. But I think the church must be countercultural in this regard. The church should emulate Jesus and his approach to ministry. So what does that look like? Well, unlike the world that values as fast as possible, um, the church mindset uh, should value and expect slow growth like a seed to a tree. This could mean that the ministries of a church are not hurried or rushed, but a study could take its time. There is room for conversations not planned, room for timelines to be adjusted because life happens. This may mean that the church uh, may say no to certain opportunities in order to maintain a slower, more present and focused attention in what they are already doing. The pace of the church may not always align with the pace of the world around it, and that's okay. It's probably actually really good. Now, on the individual level, uh, the same is true. As I said before, we feel the need to do uh, the most that we can do in the shortest amount of time, to be as efficient as possible. The more we accomplish, the better we are. But this isn't necessarily true. and can lead to some pretty unhealthy habits in our lives. We see from Jesus this slower pace. 
And slow in our culture is seen pretty strictly as a pejorative term. I mean, what is good that is described as slow? I mean, the only thing I could think of this week was ribs and some kinds of food that if you slow cook them, it's better that way. But other than that, and outside the spiritual, nothing else is really described as slow that is good. But if we really look at it, one's spiritual growth does not really jive with a hurried and quick, fast as possible process. And the more that we adhere to that lifestyle, the more in danger our spiritual life is. Uh, John Ortberg, uh, a great author, writes this. For many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. So he's pointing out that a hurried life will mean that we are not able to be the best followers of Jesus that we could be. And for a second, just uh, go along with me. Let me just paint a picture with the help uh, of an author and a great pastor, John Mark Comer, one of my favorites, of how distracted and hurried we have become in this day and age. He pinpoints it uh, to this the source of technology, uh, which both helps us in times like this where we are live streaming our service, but can also hinder us from growth in many ways. And this major distraction and source of hurriedness started in 2007. Do you remember life in 2007, all that time ago? I mean, it was only 13 years ago, but it seems like much longer than that. But check this out. So Comer says, 2007 the year Steve Jobs released the iPhone into the wild. It was also a few months after Facebook opened up to anybody with an email address, the year microblogging app called Twitter became its own platform, year one of the cloud along with the App Store, the year Intel switched from a silicon to metal chips to keep Moore's Law on a roll, and a list of other technological breakthroughs all right around 2007, the official start date of the digital age. Now, I don't know about you, but the amount of time and the activities in my day that are connected to the things just listed from 2007 is pretty significant. And it definitely adds to the thought that I can fit a lot into my day, both work and play. I can handle a couple of emails, then go back to the latest phone game I've been playing before checking Facebook again, both my personal account and the church's account. And while I'm at it, I should check Instagram to see if anyone's interacted with the posts that I've put on there. Um... And since that took an hour or two, I deserve a break, so I'll go check the latest sports updates from ESPN and Bleacher Report. Uh, Then I'll get back to some emails and some calls and pretty much go through that cycle over and over again. Did any of my experience resonate with any of you? This pandemic that we are in uh, has helped us in this regards to distraction and hurriedness, but has also brought along its own challenges. I mean, this is the big pro about sheltering in place, uh, that many of us have to stay home. And many of us have a little bit more time, if not significantly more time on our hands. And it's allowed for life to slow down a bit, but it's also led to new ways that our time can be consumed, like on social media, Facebook, or watching the news more. For me, sheltering at home has looked like being home more with family more, Uh, but now I'm on my phone a lot more and social media a lot more because I feel like it's the only way to communicate with people. Um, I have an iPhone, and I don't know if other phones do this, but maybe you with iPhones can relate that every week on on Sunday, 
my phone gives me a report of how much time I spent on it throughout the past week. And let me just say that it has increased dramatically <laughs> in the last two weeks. I want to share how much time daily I'm putting on it, but I mean, it's up in the hours. It is hours of time. I find myself on my phone a lot more, and there's still a sense at the end of the day that if I just had a few more hours, I could get more done, which probably isn't true. Let me bring us back to the point here, which is that uh, there needs to be conscious effort made towards living a life in a pace that is healthy, not rushed from one thing to the next, but fully present and without hurry. And like we see in Jesus' approach with his disciples and how he describes the kingdom of God. So let me ask you this. What is your pace of life? Are you suffering from hurry sickness? Is there enough time in your week to Sabbath? What rhythms in your life need to change so that you have that time? So that you are not in a hurry? And so that your pace and life reflect the values of God's kingdom? not trying to keep up with the world around you. Number two, God's kingdom isn't consumed with numbers, but souls. Our world values so highly efficiency, production, growth, and numbers. I think of the show uh, Shark Tank, and they say that if you bring a product on the Shark Tank, for those investors to even give it a second of their attention, you have to know your numbers because everything is numbers-driven. And there's a real temptation in our world today for the church to also be numbers-driven. In Jesus' time, there were many nations and empires growing. Uh, Obviously, the Roman Empire being the largest and the growth it experienced was historical. A big reason for that is because they instituted this practice of assimilation, allowing people that they conquered to retain much of their cultural and and their religious heritage, but pledging allegiance to the Roman Empire and adding the Roman gods to their lives. And and it worked. The Roman Empire grew to be one of the largest in history. Jesus' movement, his following, the growth of his kingdom on earth had some serious potential. I mean, so much so that they ended up crucifying him to extinguish any threat of an uprising. And here in Mark, we get an idea of how much potential there really was in the world's eyes. Uh, If we go back to our passage this morning, Mark 3, we see that there is um, a great crowd. There's a crowd gathering around Jesus, a great crowd, but Jesus doesn't seem too interested. Instead, he chooses a limited amount of disciples. In 13, he calls the disciples. And this is so counter to our culture. Today, where everyone is trying to influence as many people as possible, Jesus doesn't. Do you know, by the way, what people pay today uh, and how highly they value having thousands of followers on Instagram or YouTube? They, They literally pay money to have as many people follow them as possible. But Jesus was content with 12. We see Jesus invest in 12. What a failure that would have been perceived as today. So ignore the thousands that were right there just for a handful of guys. But I think that there's a lot of wisdom for us in that. Uh, Mark 4 again shows us how Jesus is not really all about the numbers. He's only explaining to his disciples. Verse 1 of chapter 4 tells us that Jesus was preaching to a very large crowd by the sea. And by 34 he's saying... uh, that Jesus does not share with everyone, but only with his disciples, the meaning of the parables. 
If Jesus was concerned with the numbers of his kingdom, the numbers of his followers, then it seems uh, he would have addressed the hundreds or the thousands and kept that great crowd around him. Why not use what the Romans did to build their kingdom, something like assimilation if Jesus was after the numbers? But it's pretty clear that he wasn't. And this is something I'm still working through, but we have a tendency to associate these two things together, maybe subconsciously, but some might hear the call to reach people's souls and also equate it with the need to reach the most amount of souls. And I think that sometimes that can get dangerously close to just chasing a number without valuing the person. But what I see here in Mark is that Jesus had the opportunity to have thousands and he chose few. John Mark Comer, again, kind of tying my first point and this point together, has this quote that says, hurry kills relationships. Love takes time and hurry doesn't have it. I think we see this value in Jesus. With the thousands, there would be no time with each of them. Instead, he loved deeply on those 12 disciples. By choosing the few, we see that this ensures intentionality with them, deep personal relationship, devotion to their development, and he could reach their hearts. He could do soul work in each of them. Francis Chan, in his video series, comments that we see through Jesus' actions here that he is not there for the masses, he is there to disciple the twelve. He didn't even try to convince the crowds that were around him. He had compassion on them and everything else, but it was these twelve guys that Jesus was going to walk through life with. Spending his whole life with a dozen guys may seem inefficient, but when he ascends to heaven, these are the ones that will pass on his kingdom to the world. So how does that inform us of how we should live today? Well, I think we should be like Jesus, showing compassion and love to everyone, yes, but investing deeply in, in the few. Who are we going to live life with through all the ups and downs? Who can we have deep personal relationship with, develop and grow spiritually with? Some of you may already have those people in place, and that's, that's great. And some of you may still be looking for that. But identify those people and intentionally be followers of Jesus together. I think this speaks to our church perfectly as well. We are not a community, uh, a church built to reach the masses. That's not what our community here at East Parkway is about. We can be more focused in our approach, just like Jesus. Yes, uh, there can be a temptation to be a place as a church that just gets people excited about being a part of the it crowd, but the reality is God is looking for true disciples, and that's what we want to do as well. We, we want to be true disciples. East Parkway Church, let's, let's be like Jesus in this way. I think we, can, we do well at being a smaller church because that allows for us to be more personal, to give special focus to the discipleship of every single member of this body and to grow together in the Lord. So as an application, uh, recognize that God is most concerned with your soul. Are you most concerned with your soul? Or is your attention elsewhere? Who in your uh, close circle can you be disciples of Jesus with? Who among your friends can you proactively cultivate meaningful, deep relationships that are centered on your devotion to Christ? And then love everyone else, yes, but let go of any need to please or satisfy the rest. Number three, God's kingdom has a clear goal. 
and we too must have a clear goal in life. Too many objectives can keep us from achieving the most meaningful goal in our lives. What I mean by that is, uh, while I'm in seminary and I want to be a good student, while I'm, I have a little daughter, so I want to be a good father, I, I'm married, so I want to be a good husband, I work at a church, so I want to be a good assistant pastor, um, and I'm a Christian, so I want to be a good disciple of Jesus, while I'm trying for all those things, all those things are not equal. My relationship with Jesus, my goal of living the divine life, the eternal life, the life with God, should be my main goal. Henry Nouwen says, Do we have a clear goal in life? The athletes whose clear goal is the attainment of the Olympic gold are willing to let everyone else become secondary. The way they eat, sleep, study, and train are all determined by that one clear goal. This is as true in the spiritual life as it is in the life of competitive sports. Without a clear goal, we will always be distracted and spend our energy on secondary things. Keep your eye on the prize. Martin Luther said to his people, And what is our prize? It is the divine life, the eternal life, the life with and in God. And Jesus' goal for people was to have divine relationship with him, that they would have and live the divine life. He did this through discipleship and through his death on the cross and resurrection and ascension. What are our goals in life? It's okay to have multiple goals, like I shared, I want to finish school, I want to be a good father, etc. But do I have as the priority, as the focus, above all else, the divine life with Christ? You probably have goals. Um, a healthy marriage, or to be successful enough to provide for yourself or your family, uh, to have great relationships with those around you, or to achieve and accomplish, fill in the blank. But more than any of those things, our goal must be our relationship with Christ. Keeping us from that goal, though, is a lot of distraction. There are a lot of things in our life, some very important in the right place, but that can rise to a significance in our lives that is not healthy. And I think that's what Jesus sensed in the crowd, that many of them were there for selfish reasons, for what Jesus could do for them. But as far as the sacrifice that they would have to give to have relationship, true relationship with him, they were still holding on to the things of this world. And Francis Chan, in that video series, summarizes it like this. He's saying that Jesus says, If you're too busy for me, the God who can heal lepers and calm seas, if that's not enough for you, then you know what? You do your own thing. If you've got cares of this world, take care of those things. Because those things are big things. I'm just the son of God. No big deal. I'll take my guys and I'll go change the world. I love that perspective of this passage. And I want our church to have a little of that, too. So what does that look like for us? Discipleship. We are all to be disciples to Jesus, who is alive today. Not to any doctrine, not to a confession of faith, not to a denomination, but we are all disciples to Jesus directly, just as the 12 apostles were. Are you living your life with Jesus as your teacher, as your mentor, as your rabbi? Are you following him through your life? And as a church, everything we do must be about supporting and encouraging, developing disciples of Jesus. Our community that we are building for Christ is a community of Jesus followers. 
not as East Parkwayans or Wesleyans or Reformed theology disciples. No, our church is about each member following the way of Jesus, being a disciple of Christ. God's kingdom has one goal. And are we living with that as our primary goal, both individually and corporately? Let me wrap this up. In closing, I just want to remind us of how God's kingdom is unlike any other. In a world where life is nonstop, from the moment we wake up and check our phones, uh, to taking care of the family, to going to work, to keeping up with social media, to figuring out dinner, to binging the latest Netflix or Prime or Hulu or Disney Plus TV shows, uh, to going to bed after checking our phones for the hundredth time that day, where that's all normal, God's kingdom moves at a slower pace. Slow, present, deliberate, intentional, and measured. In a world where results are king, numbers and statistics drive every strategy and plan, God's kingdom isn't driven by the numbers. God cares about your soul. The kingdom of God and the church isn't a numbers-driven business. It's a kingdom that is driven by the desire that people enter into personal relationship with Christ. And in a world where being more, doing more, accomplishing more is driven into us, where multitasking reigns supreme and where diversifying your time and energy is encouraged, God's kingdom has just one goal, making disciples of Jesus. So in this time when our normal rhythms of life have been compromised, it's a perfect time to stop and reflect on your routine in life and if it aligns with God's rhythms and pace. Hopefully this helps us to be better citizens of God's kingdom and better followers of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that is there to guide us and direct us. And there is a lot going on in our world today. Even without this pandemic, we just have so much that causes us to hurry, that causes us to be busy. And our devotion to you, our primary goal of being your disciple, can get lost in the shuffle. And so, God, I pray that we would do what is necessary to change that, to keep you um, right in front of us, that everything we do in the day would be secondary to us following you. God, I pray that uh, all of us would feel encouraged to look at the rhythms of our life. Thank you for caring for each one of us deeply. I pray that we would give uh, the most attention to our souls and also to the souls of others. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your name. Amen.